Hey guys, this is Ishai Breslauer and welcome to the CRE Shark Eye Show where we discuss commercial real estate. On Mondays, we dive deep into an asset class and on Thursdays, we go into some inspirational stories for the weekend. Can't wait to start. Let's go. Hey guys, before we continue, I would like to introduce you to the seven day CRE challenge, which will introduce you to commercial real estate and will show you that anyone can do this. Also, I have the free cheat sheet for commercial real estate with the six best secrets for commercial real estate. You can download it free. Just click below or above wherever it is and get it. Let's continue. Hey guys, this is Ishai Breslauer, the CRE Shark Eye Show. We're talking about commercial real estate, of course, every Monday and every Thursdays. Mondays, we dissect the market. We go into what's going on now in the market, what's exciting, where are the new deals, and what is really happening with each asset class we dissect, we get into, we drill in. That's what we do. And Thursdays usually is more inspirational. It's the end of the week. Today's Mondays, guys. You guys are recuperated. You're going to work. You want to hear the real stuff, the real thing that's going on in the market. And today we have a very special guest, Avner Krohn of Jasco Development. It's a company that does development of so many asset classes, and he has so much experience, so much knowledge. And I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Uh, so without further ado, let me bring him on. Let me bring him on. Avner, how are you? Pleasure to have you on the show. How's it going? Thank you so much, Ishai. Doing great. Good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are located. Exactly. I think it's mostly good morning, but uh, I hope everything is good. I hope everything is good. How are you doing nowadays? Let's ask this. How are you doing nowadays? You're going to the office a lot. You're staying home mostly. Well, what's what's going on? Well, nowadays is, uh, you know, it's New Year, right? So this is the first workday back in uh, January 20 2021. Uh, hard to say that. Um, I'm uh, at this point, uh, it's kind of a combination. Uh, my office is in the state of Connecticut. I live in New York, uh, for many, many months. I work from home. Uh, thank God, uh, we had a brand new baby a couple of months ago in middle oh, of COVID. Thank you. So I had the ability to stay with her and enjoy her. Um, but work from home at this point, it's kind of a combination. In fact, we just signed a lease in the city in Manhattan. Um, uh, and, uh, starting our first uh, work day later today, uh, from the city. So, uh, we're back in the office, um, with a whole bunch of restrictions, um, working partly from home, but definitely a combination. Okay. Beautiful. So first I would like to start with this. I would like to start with this because, um, I think that would be first. We, we have, I have so much to ask you. You have no idea. So I'll start with the first basic question. What is Jasco development and what do you guys do? All right, that's a, not a 30 second answer, but I'll give a broad overview. Uh, we are develop, we're developers uh, and contractors of our own projects. Uh, so the majority of the projects we develop, we also build in-house. Uh, and we specialize in multiple asset classes. Uh, I'll run through a couple of them. One is adaptive reuse of historic structures. So former historic buildings, well, I should say current historic buildings that were used maybe as a former office, uh, former hotel, uh, will convert uh, to mixed use assets. Um, and it has its own complexities and its own rewards uh, for that asset class. Uh, we also build ground up multifamily. Uh, so raw land and or existing buildings that we're demolishing and building ground up multifamily. 
uh, predominantly open market, market rate multifamily. Uh, we also build medical facilities and build to suit facilities. What that means is a tenant may come to us, uh, a franchise looking to expand, uh, many times specific to the medical field, but not, but not only and not only not specifically. And what we'll do is we'll work a program with them where we find the land and or an existing building, build a full turnkey facility, uh, work with the architects, engineers, corporate for the franchisee, and build a, they, it's what we call a plug and play. They can come in and put their equipment in. They don't have to put out as much capital because we go ahead and build it all for them. They, it helps on their rapid expansion throughout a state, um, less capital needed, and also they don't have to deal with all the headaches of architecture, engineering, permitting, and construction. Um, so that's what we do. Recently, we've been more involved in the acquisition of defaulted notes in particular to properties that we want to own the asset. We may get paid off and that's great if we do, we get paid off close to 100%, we're happy because we're buying the notes at a discount. However, uh, in particular, uh, we end game would be to own the asset and that way it would be a win-win either way. That's the summary. Listen, <laughs> it, sound, it, sound, it sounds like I have so much to ask you. We need a show of two days on a row. We need like 10 hours now. Welcome, so, uh, to my, welcome to my head all day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. So, okay, let, let's start from the very beginning. I'll tell you sure. something. Um, this is a thing I never had on the show, okay? But before I have to ask you all these questions that I want to ask you, because I have like 50, okay? So I'll have to hunk it down. But um, how did you start? How did you get to start? Jasco Development, the name Jasco, how did you get to start? I'm gonna I'm gonna back I'll back up and I'll I'll talk to you uh, from the age of ten. Um, so I'll give you a little a little background here. Uh, yeah. my, my parents are amazing people. I have to tell you, uh, they put up. You with sold me. your toys. Don't tell me. Exactly. Literally, <laughs> they they put up with their uh, they put up with their with their crazy kid. Um, so at ten years old, I took my dad's lawnmower. Uh, I lived in Muncie, New York. Most of the homes have a large piece of land. And I started cutting grass. I, I did not like uh, the boredom. Neither did I like camp. I didn't like rules. Didn't like school all that much at the time. Definitely didn't want to go to camp where I was told when exactly I had to play baseball. And so I took the lawnmower and uh, I had some very lovely neighbors. And I made my first $600 uh, at 10 years old cutting people's grass. Um, my mom and dad were fantastic. Uh, they supported it. They then lent me money to buy some additional equipment. Um, and so long story short, by the time I was 15, we had a hundred accounts. I was in high school with what we call the alphanumeric pager. Isha, I don't know, we're dating ourselves, but this was a beeper, which even I'm assuming many of the people don't even remember what that was, where someone could call an 800 number and leave you a message. And then it would text the message out on this little device. Um, so I'd be in high school and the crews were out um, and you know, being giving directions through these alphanumeric pagers. And um, you know, the business had quickly grown. I couldn't drive yet. So my mom was driving us around with a huge trailer. Uh, and then at some point it was just too much for her and I'd have to hire people that had you know, a valid license and were able to work for us at the time. So we, we did all kind of everything from cutting trees down, landscaping, uh, cutting lawns. 
But if there was a system in place, I think at one day our height, we cut 48 yards in one day. Um, and I learned, I learned how to work really, really hard. Uh, I wasn't wearing a suit. I was covered from head to toe in mud. Uh, worked with some great friends. In fact, the, one of the fellows who worked for me at the time, uh, my age, today runs our entire construction division. He's a licensed chief head building inspector in the state of Connecticut, uh, put himself through a whole bunch of schooling as an estimator, went through NYU. And uh, you know, circling back, we, we worked together many, many, many years ago. Uh, so I learned how to save money. I learned what it meant to work hard. I learned how to be honest, to give an estimate um, to people. And if it was an overestimate, I, I charge them less money, uh, which was a rarity at the time. And subsequently, I went to Israel and I thought I'd go to Israel for nine months. I would study in a yeshiva, in a Judaic school, learning Talmud. Uh, and at the time, I thought I'd go for a number of months. My mom was running the cruise, running, running the business. And you have to picture my mom. She's a uh, a shy 411 Jewish mama, as they say. She was not, you know, out there running tough, tough guys, you know, covered from head to toe in grass. She, she prefers going making kugel. Exactly. She was she's yeah. amazing. Um, and at the end of the day, I loved Israel. I spent a lot of time there um, and decided, you know something, I'm going to stay here. Uh, at the time, I was only 17 when I had gone to well, Israel. Were you in Jerusalem? You I was in Jerusalem, predominantly in Jerusalem, yep. Okay. And uh, I also played, uh, well, I did play drums and music professionally uh, throughout, um, you know, pretty much my teenagehood all the way until about five years ago. Where is that? And You're kidding. Because I was in the music scene also. There years. you go. Yeah. Really? Which year was that, by the way? Up until five years ago. So we're talking about till two. I got married five years ago. So it was right before I got married where I, I, I laid down the drumsticks a bit, <laughs> you know. Oh. But I played all over the country. I played all over Israel. I used to play That's weddings amazing. and concerts. That's amazing. I'll tell you why. Because how old are you, by the way? I'm 39. You're 39. So I'm 47. And when I was around 20, I was around 20, I was singing. I was singing, recording. I was jumping wow. on stages and stuff like that. That was even before the days of Shweki, as we call it. But uh, <laughs> it was the days of Zimmer. Remember that? <laughs> it was it was way back. But anyways, I did that for a little while. Also, I had a band also in Israel, and when wow. I came to America, I used to you know here and there do some gigs. But uh, there were times, as we call it, there were times. Oh yeah, those were fantastic. Yeah, it's very far. You're a man of many talents, as we call it. Man of hey, many li talents. limited talents, but I, I, very, I, I had a great family that supported uh, supported us in uh, alternative talents. So I went back. I, I, I decided, all right, I'm going to stay in Israel. Uh, subsequently, put the business up for sale. Um, sold it to a large Italian um, firm. They at the time had a nursery where they were, you know, selling trees and flowers, and they also had a large landscape division. Uh, didn't sell it for all that much money, you know, compared to the revenues that we had brought in. But, um, you know, sold the business, went back to Israel, worked for Birthright a whole bunch of years, uh, ran logistics for them uh, until I came back to the United States at 21. At that point, you know, I had saved up some funds uh, from working all those years. And I had a, a, a business partner that wanted to get involved in the real estate game. Now, background, my grandparents, uh, amazing people. Corporate, corporate lawyers. Uh, my grandma was the first woman uh, as a top 10 uh, partner in any law firm in the United States. And wow. my grandfather was one of the, one of the initial, um, I guess, uh, founders of pro bono law at Harvard. And you're going back, you know, God bless him, he's going to be 95. Um, family of overachievers. He's still working every day. And, and they're very simple, amazing, beautiful people. 
I grew up, you know, around the, around law, but my dad is a moil. So we always, we always joked that he learned how to subtract and I tried to add, um, <laughs> <you know? laughs> but uh, end of the day, I, I realized I didn't really want to sit all day in, um, in, in an office. Although let me tell you, fast forward a bunch of years in the real estate game and here I am sitting in an office, a good part of my day, but I get to be uh, more creative. Um, so we fast forward, I was, uh, I think 22 at maybe 23 at the time. And I partnered with somebody 50, 50, and we bought our first home in Brooklyn at the time. The thought process was, uh, you know, the communities were changing over time and the, the housing demand was increased and it was just a pure flip play. We bought the first home for $280,000. I do kick myself today that we didn't buy the rest of the block. Uh, other people wanted 310 or 320 and we were, oh, that's just too high. And we're buying this home for 280. Um, did some minor repairs, but we had it rented out to a tenant for about, I'd say 16 months, subsequently sold it to another developer at the time who had decided, Hey, you know what? We can upgrade the house and make some more money. So we sold it for, I think $355,000 at the time. That was my first uh, official foray into ownership of real estate. I knew nothing. Um, but we had done well, uh, you know, again, on a small size deal. And so as time rolled on, uh, we went into uh, smaller multifamily acquisitions of six units, uh, daycare centers. Uh, and as time went on again, we had other development opportunities, uh, both in the office sector as well as uh, mixed use sector. And I'm not going to be the one to say, hey, we knew everything. We knew, I knew everything going on at the time. I still remember sitting with a bigger accounting firm at some point, and we hadn't taken depreciation off our tax returns for five years. I was very happy. It was a sizable check coming back to us. Um, but, you know, it was a very homegrown operation. It was a one-man band. Uh, it was myself and um, with a lot of support and help from, from the background on the family side of things. Um, but at, as time went on, we kind of built a niche, uh, increased our construction capacity, increased our um, exposure to numerous states. So we were at that time in, in New York, um, flipped over to New Jersey and then the state of Connecticut um, for our developments and acquisitions. Um, and so over time, you build a niche, there's opportunities, um, you know, many a time in the larger markets or the wealthier markets, you had tremendous competition, cap rate compression where people were buying for very small spreads or small returns on their money. And as a young guy back then, it was all about, well, how do I build value, right? How do I build value? How do I build value for my investors? How do I build value for myself and my partner? Uh, and so we went into more urban cities, a little bit lower income, but looked at the downtowns and pockets of regentrification where we thought we can make a difference. We can buy you know, two, three, four buildings and really change an area, try to bring in restaurants, bars, M existing multifamily may have been below, below par where anyone that had a decent job wouldn't want to live in the existing multifamily. So we would create you know, a, a really nice uh, apartment product, uh, but typically it would be cheaper by 15, 20% than the larger city it was next to. So it was an, al an alternative for someone making between 40 to 75,000 a year, right in that, in that gap. Um, and so we got into historic because many of these towns um, in New Jersey and in Connecticut at the time uh, were old manufacturing facilities and they had beautiful downtowns and another conversation on how 
those downtowns got decimated, um, but it offered opportunity. And so we got into the adaptive reuse and historic tax credits, which we could get into more uh, detail later on if you want, or we'll get on another yeah. show specific to historic tax yeah. credits, which could yeah. take again, four or five shows when you talk about well, detail. Bing, I have a bunch of questions about historic stuff. So yeah. We'll jump into that. And then over time, yeah, we, on, realized, yeah. we realized that on the office front and the retail front, we'd sign leases with medical tenants. Um, and, and these were one-off uh, medical offices, great tenants, but had tremendous um, difficulties in obtaining their architecture, licensing, permitting, really didn't understand the process. Uh, you own a PT group or a, or a dental group and, and you're focused on what you do. You don't know construction or the process. And so we said, all right, well, hey, we're, we're building anyway. We'll handle that at our cost. And in essence, these were buildings we owned already. We wanted to lease up the vacant space. Right. As time went on, we realized there's something called built to suit, which again, I'm not a founder of. Uh, many developers across the United States we're working with a similar product, but we brought it down to the one-off medical user and realized that the market and the lenders would replicate what a larger franchisee in the system, maybe if you had a QSR, which is a quick service restaurant group, you might have to own 20 locations to be valued at a certain cap rate. However, if you own one dental group, one dental facility because of the investment and because it's a medical doctor backing the lease, banks and potential buyers would value it at the same or even a better cap rate uh, than a larger franchisee. And so we started working on dental product and predominantly in Connecticut, we built, I believe about 10 to 12 dental facilities uh, for different doctors, different groups. Um, and what we did is the build to suit, we did not own the property yet. What would happen is we'd work with a group and they say, all right, here's a list of four or five cities we'd like to be in. Here's uh, our budget, right? Our business model, our square footage requirement. Some tenants had the ability to move into a brand new existing ground up building we built from scratch. Others couldn't pay that rent that maybe would be in a secondary location um, into an existing building with a retrofit. And so from there, we got into building um, urgent cares for a large franchisee. We just completed last year and sold uh, Hartford Hospital uh, Surgery Center. Um, you know, a billion dollar Very corporation. Uh, we've done T-Mobile, Gaz, Dunkin' Donuts, uh, you know, mul multiple different franchisees. And you're at the women away of the franchisee or corporate in regards to their growth. Uh, so at the same time, we don't want to put all our eggs in one basket. And so while our construction teams really understand the relationship between corporate and the franchisee, and again, another full conversation on how that, all the mechanism of how it all works and uh, approval processes right. and construction is a longer co conversation. So we then had the opportunity to work with a ground up multifamily. Um, you know, again, you're scouring multiple markets at the time. And so, or at any particular time and other opportunities may present themselves. And so currently I believe we have just about 250 units in three developments, uh, ground up multifamily, Two of them have ground floor retail. Uh, I would call it, you know, one one has full floor retail, but it's going to be more financial services. Another one is just, a, a, I'd say, 6,000 out of a 17,000 square foot floor plate is going to be retail just to support the building with 90 units above. Uh, and then another, another property where we're going to start construction in, uh, I'd say, in March or April, 111 units carved out of 20 acres of wetlands. Um, it's a five-acre site that we're going to carve out uh, and start construction on shortly. So that's that's uh, that's our niche. Listen, 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 right now. You guys are in many places. 
And let, let me, before I ask you the first question, there's another question that I, um, you know, that pops out. And I think that is very important. I know a lot of guys who do a lot of stuff. Okay. And uh, my, I always say it because it's really a unique thing. When I ask a guy who does multifamily, only multifamily and, uh, you know, core plus maybe, you know, income producing, very conservative type of stuff. I would ask him and he would tell me or she, you know, they would tell me um, retail is, is, is horrible or, you know, don't touch that sector. Don't touch that asset class or I don't do development or I do. This is the best. And then you find a guy who does retail, of course, until COVID. Um, sure. And um, and he would tell you COVID is a unique thing. We're going to talk about it. But uh, he would tell you uh, retail is the best because it has you know, uh, less tenants, you know, you have to do less. The leases are different. You could have a net lease type of, a, 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 you know, a situation is, uh, um, and, you know, less of a hands-on situation, all kinds of things like that. And then comes a developer who says, listen, I develop, I create value, and that is my margin, and that's how I make the best. And the other guy said, I don't touch development. It's horrible. So, and you are involved in so many asset classes. Um what brought you to be in so many places? And while other people say you should be focused on one. Sure. It's, it's a great question. Uh, I think myself and my group um, of, uh, of employees and partners, uh, you know, we're very opportunistic and we're always willing to learn. So you're sitting here now. I've been at this for you know, more, more than 15 years. And so it, it what didn't happen all at once, right? It wasn't like, oh, hey, uh, we're a multifamily guy. Now we're a retail guy. I mean, I we owned office too. So we can talk about office. Right. You need to know what you know, what you don't know. And then you need to learn and be surrounded with great people, uh, experts in their industry. Um, and same thing with our subcontractors, our architects, engineers. Uh, I, I think we're not cheap when it comes to using the right talent. Uh, you know, we surround ourselves with a great, great group of, of subcontractors and partners. And so... What I get at is this, we're core, when you talk about core, what is Jasco? We're a value add real estate development firm. Now, does that mean that we won't buy an existing multifamily? Not at all. We'd love to buy an existing multifamily building structure, renovate kitchens and bathrooms, just like everybody else, create our value, refinance, cash out. But those opportunities today with the spreads and the margins are far between, especially in the tri-state area, of course, um, right. And there's few and far between. And so we're opportunistic. And what ends up happening is you, you become an expert in multiple different facets. And when you're a developer, yes, building ground up multifamily may be different than building retail. But at the end of the day, civil site work, approvals, town meetings, planning and zoning hearings, um, you know, state approvals, yeah, state yeah. traffic approvals. It, it's all the same. I mean, there's modifications. Uh, but when it comes from the, uh, development, the ground up aspect of development, it's all the same. Now, understanding construction is a major facet. So like I mentioned earlier, our head of construction is highly experienced. He's licensed to be a chief building inspector in any city in Connecticut. What that means is he can run the entire building department in any city. So he's been with us, I'd say 13 years, um, you know, working up through through the system. And, you know, we do some of the property management in-house for all our retail and our smaller multi. But when you talk about expertise, we are not experts 
at large multifamily um, management. And when I say that, most of the multifamily we're building today is highly amenitized. It's not, you know, a $700 rent for a you know one bedroom apartment. These are you know two thousand dollars and up of ten thousand square feet of amenities. The the the, the not the asset management much of it we do in house, but the property management it's an expertise. And right. the companies that, it's a third party that, management company. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I don't believe you know again we 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 can talk about partnerships and and uh, and um, equity structure in a moment, but we're not looking specifically to manage so that we receive the management fee. Uh, I'm the principal, the majority uh, shareholder in any one property, uh, and it's really all about the real estate for us as opposed to a management fee. And so from from a management perspective, That's unless, very interesting. Yeah, unless you, you own so north of a thousand, you, when it comes to that. Yeah. What's that? You have so many different approaches when it comes to that. Some people are only about taking the management and less of the real estate, and sure. some people are more of the real estate and it's very it, interesting. Depends, it really depends on the equity class. Now, when it comes to retail, like you exactly. mentioned, strict retail developers or owners, you know, it's a lot easier on the management. Uh, they're triple net leases. You have contracts on your parking lot. Um, you know, you're dealing with tenant relations, which you very likely would have to deal with anyway, even if you brought in a management firm. Um, right. And so it's a lot easier to manage. We manage all that. The other thing I should mention is in a way we're merchant developers. We sell the majority of our assets. We build tremendous value, and then we sell to somebody else who wants a cap rate deal. That's a new, typically a newer product. Um, if it's retail, it's a very long term, fifteen, maybe twenty, or sometimes ten year lease. Uh, if it's multifamily, it's been usually gut renovated, and so our buyer pool is somebody else who says, "Hey, listen, I'm not a developer. I'm not a GC. I'm not interested in approvals. I don't want to put at risk capital out for a year or two." Uh, of many hundreds of thousands of dollars on a project, not knowing what my return may be, or even if there's a bigger potential return, our capital is more conservative. And so we sell the majority of our product. Some of it we'll keep. We want to keep you know cash flow for the company. Um, but you know overall, we sell. And so we're really more focused on the development aspect, on the construction aspect, and then stabilization. And then at such point, we sell. Listen, I want to ask you something. You guys do historic, right? Tell us a little bit about why you got into that and how interesting it, how interesting this whole sector is. Sure. Where are the benefits? Where is the gold when it comes to historic? Let's where are the, the challenges? Sure. Where is the gold? And who are the clients for it? Meaning, uh, meaning, tell us a little bit which asset class you're talking historic. What is it? Multifamily, retail. Sure. What is it exactly? Tell us a little bit more about that because that's Absolutely. a unique, it's a unique thing. Absolutely. Uh, it's a very unique aspect of real estate. And to all the listeners here, I would venture to say maybe one of the most complicated and sophisticated parts um, of development when it comes to the real estate game. Uh, it's challenging from many, many aspects. And there's hopefully uh, a large reward for the, the challenge that you have to go through. So let's start like this. Uh, Historic properties from many towns are a major part of the town's fabric. If it's in a downtown, um, you know, back in the day, it may have been a department store or a furniture store. It was, you know, named after a family who owned the building many a time or, or manufacturing. And so as many of these downtowns um, 
have changed through mall development on the outside of the cities. Well, you know, now we have online, but you know, people fleeing to suburbia uh, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, many of the core downtowns became desolate. So what that equals for us as real estate developers is, hey, opportunity. Now, there was a market trend where it turned around and said, hey, people would love to live closer to work, live in uh, you know, a nice, beautiful building close to transportation, as opposed to the suburb suburbia life. So there- That's not the case right now, but we'll no, talk about No, not the case it. right now, uh, specifically, definitely not in major cities like New York City. Um, yes. You know, it's still, case ahead, some of the small, still the case in some of the smaller cities, but not, not overall market trends. Um, and so historic properties many a time were able to be purchased for, you know, given away. We, I, I have a story. We purchased a building from a city for $1. I brought a certified check to the closing as a joke uh, for, a, you know, for $1. So many times you could pick up the properties for a pretty low number per square foot. The challenge is construction. Construction is extremely expensive. Um, code. Many, what's that? The code. Many, yeah, to bring the bring a property to code. You're typically gutting these buildings completely. Uh, they've many times had no roof on for 30 years. Major structural. You're bringing it to code to fire code elevators. Um, you're rebuilding the structure of a property, and then you're probably digging out utilities. You might have a remediation of asbestos and lead, and who knows what else, right? On your phase and one. You phase two. And, and you have the historic component also. Where, where the city comes into play and says, uh, this, is, uh, this is an historic building, right? Sure. This is a historic so building. Every city, such. Yeah. Exactly. In every city, and you'd be surprised, even cities that you consider lower income cities that are sitting with you know, 20 buildings like this vacant may have historic code uh, that they want kept within the city itself. And so it kind of makes most of those projects nearly impossible to build without any incentive. In addition, once you finish a project, um, a city, if they do not have a tax abatement program in place, you will get whacked with double, triple, quadruple taxes uh, because of the additional value built. So, and and the other and the other concern is, all right, well, who you're renting it to and what's the price point? Because many of these buildings are in a lower income area. The median rent may be quite low, um, and so you're in essence trying to attract another clientele willing to pay, uh, you know, more money for a new product. Um, so what ends up happening is what we call the gift and the curse to, as a developer is historic tax credits. So the states, as well as the federal government, let's talk about the state of Connecticut. Um, most of my familiar. Yeah, because uh, you're aiming probably you're going to talk to us about the process. Sure. We're going to talk about the process. Killing, that's where they kill you, but the reward is tremendous. Yes. Exactly. And so we just finished a five-story building, uh, started occupancy in July. Thank God we're 90% occupied on a historic property. So I can just run you through that particular property. So what ends up happening is the state and the, and the federal government would like, the Parks Department would actually like to see these buildings restored instead of being knocked down. And so they offer an incentive. Uh, the state offers 25 to 30% of your construction costs as a historic tax credit, and we'll get into what that means in a moment. And the federal government is typically 20% of your project. Now, this is specifically on your hard costs. And even on your hard costs of construction, there are much of items that get backed out, such as demolition, site work. Those are, are not eligible for historic tax credits. Now, in order to obtain this historic tax credit, there is a five-part process with the state and the federal government. 
And uh, the application process is three parts prior to construction, to prior to approvals, and then two parts after you finish construction. You're dealing with, with government bureaucrats and they're doing their job, but they may be understaffed. Um, there's no financial incentive for them to get anything done at a faster rate. Well, whereas developers every day, every moment, every hour is you know money being burnt. So you need to have a whole lot of time and patience to work through the system. And in essence, what happens is your architect, and I should say, when I mentioned before, we bring in yeah. professionals who are top of their market. That was my, you, yes. you need Go to bring ahead. in an architect. It's not an, any architect. You need to bring an architecture firm that deals specifically with historic with restoration yeah. because, number one, the, his, the challenges of building historic, the unknown. You're, you have an existing building. Until you demolish interiors, you don't know what you're dealing with, right? So if you don't own the building and you're working on your architecture, and you didn't demolish the interior, you may have a whole bunch of surprises. In addition, the application process is complicated. And so you'll make it a part one, you'll make an application process, first of all, as to why the building is significant and the, histor and the historic nature of the building. So first thing you need to do is designate the actual property as an historic property. However, if the building is located within a historic district that was already considered by the town and a state historic an historic district, which is a process some towns go through. You may have you may have to go and and, and fulfill the obligation of, of a part one. However, um, it's light because if your building meets certain requirements, it was built for certain, before a certain year. Um, you're automatically considered an historic structure. Part two is the architect starting to work through what it is that we're going to offer as part of our restoration. So you're getting the historic tax credit because you're going to restore the facade of the building uh, and sometimes some, some interiors to existing conditions from let's call it 1903, 117 or 118 years ago. So there's detailed plans on the windows, on the brick pointing, on the doors, on the cornices of the buildings and it goes on and on. We had one project with just restoration of the two front doors. We're talking about two 30-inch doors. The restoration of that and the doors themselves and the entryway was $45,000, right? So you could have bought a brand new set of beautiful doors for $12,000. So part of what you're going to receive as a tax credit is not really cash in your pocket because you're going to have increased costs to restore the actual building. Now, here's how a tax credit works. State of Connecticut will say, all right, you have a project, let's just call it $4 million. I have, I have many more, I have many more things to talk about with you. So let's oh. let's try a little bit. I'll so make it quickly. Yeah. The benefit of historic tax credits is simple. You get 30% yeah. of your project from the state of Connecticut. When you do receive those tax credits, you could transfer them to somebody. Call it the electric company. The electric company will pay you specifically in the state of Connecticut, not in every state, 100 cents on the dollar for those tax credits. What they do with those tax credits is they say, all right, if we owe, you know, call it a million dollars to the state of Connecticut for taxes, by them having this voucher, that is a million dollars of tax credits. They don't have to pay a million dollars of taxes. There's no benefit to them other than the fact that you have an existing building that was vacant that now has, call it 20, 30, 40 new tenants in the building itself, and they're now using electrical service. The federal is more complicated. The federal, either you have to use yourself as an owner of the property, or you need to bring in a partner. And this is a lot more complicated prior yeah. to construction. And again, the benefit, we're not going to get into all the details. 
But if you have 50% of your project covered in tax credits, you can get an existing loan as your as your first mortgage from a, any construction lender. And then you can borrow separately against your tax credits. Call it 70, 80, sometimes even 90%, not secured by the property, but secured by the tax credits. So you may have a project where you come out of pocket less than 10% of equity required in a building if the building is large enough. And I say it's very important to understand that you really are not going to be able to bring in a partner on your federal tax credits if the credits are under a couple million dollars, which means the project had to be, you know, 15, 20 million plus. However, you can borrow against those federal credits. Now, you're in essence going to be awarded those credits once your project is completed. At that point, you're bought out by either your partner um, or by called the electric company, the state of Connecticut. It's cash in your pocket. You now can take that money, pay off the loan that you had against the historic tax credits. And now you only have existing your senior loan. And in essence, if the project gave you a 50 percent, um, you know, reduction in your costs, it's really not 50 percent because you had additional costs to build historic, but call it 35 percent. And so now a project that made no sense on paper, right, that cost you five million or ten million dollars now had a basis 35 to 40 percent less than that construction cost. So I'll tell you. So. Meaning that's a whole different subject. I want to go to a different thing, but there's a whole different subject that I'm going to put it in parentheses because I'm curious about that. Sure. How do you underwrite this whole thing? But sure. uh, and, th and that's very cool. But I'm, we're not going to answer it right now because uh, I want to ask you this. You said you're going to you you also develop multifamily, right? right. You also develop multifamily with today with today's environment. And I'm going to jump to today. What's going on today's? You know, we all know what happened with COVID. We all know what happened to the market. We all know what happened to retail, which is something I'm going to talk to you in a second. But first of all, multifamily, which is a resilient asset class that a lot of people are excited. And most investors and most people who start up, that's where they go to because it's it's the least demanding in terms of knowledge base, you know, sure. to get into. So, so with those asset classes, with multifamily, when you go and build, what type of class you build when it comes to that? What class is it an a class building a b class building what type of class in which locations you focus on type of locations don't have to, to be specific sure um so great questions uh, in regards to what we focus on um it really is market-based right we have three different products that we're putting out right now for three different markets um and so they're all our construction i need to say this and i and reiterate it to everyone listening we're looking at numbers and of course we're underwriting these deals and we're looking at returns. However, our product always has to be a superior product. We build fantastic product. We're very careful on our construction, whether it's a B or C product, depending on what you're building, it, it always has to be fantastic construction. Your A product might have a nicer finish than your B product. However, the bones of that building and the workmanship of the buildings have to be paralleled. Uh, again, they have to be, that's us as Jasco. That's our our mantra. That's what we believe in, um, and that's what we do. So, when we're, we're looking at a market. Important. Yeah, very important. If we're looking at a market where, hey, we're, we have one product right now. We bought two office buildings. We're going to knock them down. We're going to build a, uh, a forty-eight units of ground floor retail. It's a very wealthy community. A huge barrier to entry. The apartments are going to be very Tony-like. Um, you know, beautiful um, finishes. 
and so on, because we're going to demand the rents in that marketplace. Uh, another product we have. You, you, you guys are going to own those properties or are going to sell it forward to uh, uh, we, we underwrite both ways. We underwrite as if we're going to own um, and, and or sell um, really depends on where the market is at the time. So that way we're not, you know, so you're free, you're free to decide Exactly. I mean, when you're in your investors, you have the ability to decide, do I want to keep it? Do I want to sell it? That doesn't sure. really matter. It matters as long as it may, it makes sense on paper, both ends you're in. Correct. If they're both ends do not make sense. We are not in. Um, and because we don't want to be stuck in a, in a market where a market turns or financing dries up for whatever reason, there's, you know, a problematic situation at the time. Remember development, you're building a few years out. And so we're building now, if we start in the spring, you got 15 months to finish construction on some of these products, and then you got to occupy it. So, you know, it's a two or three year turnaround at times. And so you need to have options open. Um, so we're, we're building the product. Um, typically our product in the state of Connecticut is four to five stories, um, specific to construction and land costs. How tall you go changes your construction prices drastically. Once you get past um, four stories of stick frame, as we call it, um, so whether or not you build the ground floor as a podium where it's steel or concrete and then four stories of stick frame that's building out of wood on top of that, once you go past that, you can increase your construction costs on your total project by 20% or more on the total project costs, your lumber changes, your code changes for fire, uh, and so on and so forth. And so it really depends on your land value and your land cost. If your land is cheap um, and you're not sure of the demand, you may not go past uh, your four stories. Uh, right now, currently in Connecticut, our tallest buildings are five stories. Um, and so, you know, most of the buildings, uh, two of, out of the three that right. we're building For now. If correctly, if you go six stories and up, you, you, you have to go steel, if I remember correctly. You know, there's a new product out there, uh, heavy timber, um, and you don't have to. Because I think I could go now. Is it prefab? Is it, is it prefab? Not specifically. It's just a different no. lumber type. Um, and okay. now you can go up to seven stories even more. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, but it's not just the structure, right? There's other other components of the building itself. There's the fire rating on the exterior of the buildings that, that changes. Uh, there's the sprinkler systems that change. Uh, sometimes there's pumps that need to be installed, uh, depending on your utilities coming into into the into the site. It's a bigger picture right. conversation. Um, but you know, you want to analyze and figure out what you can do. In some towns as well, there's height restrictions. The the product we're working on now, uh, in that specific town, prior to us working through a change of um, of the zone itself, we were not allowed to go past 35 feet, which wouldn't allow us to go past three stories. We changed that to 65 feet. Uh, which allowed us to go f uh, four stories, including any cornices, any you know, uh, any uh, roofing uh, um, uh, additional height. And so, you know, depending on the product and depending on the location, I don't think you could have one product that you build and that's it. What we have not done to date is low income or workforce housing with additional tax credits. And that's something else I can't really speak to uh, as much. Right. I don't that's know an much expertise. About. Doing what we call Class D, you know, HUD. Sure. Uh, and all those, uh, which are basically low-income housing, that's a different expertise, different type of filing to the municipalities or federal, whatever it is. Um, you need a different type of expertise, different type of uh, of people. You know, I looked into that uh, in the past, and uh, we we figured that this requires a whole different level of expertise, meaning you have sure. to really focus. The people who do that... Um, 
primarily they do that. They do, sure. you know, low income housing. That's what they do. Sure. So if you're not excited about it, it could bring tremendous numbers because the numbers don't come from actually renting it out or selling or whatever. It comes from all those grants that you get in order to do that from the government or whatever. But um, um, if you're not, if that's not your game, you don't do that. I want to ask you something um, sure. about, re about retail. Okay. Um, and here it is, basically. You do retail, too. And retail required really a, a totally different knowledge base mm -hmm. and, and type of, and type of uh, relationships and connections with franchisees, with nationals, with, you know, uh, with all those businesses. What do you guys do exactly with that? Meaning, where are you when it comes to that? And uh, what, do you, what is your business model when it comes to retail? Absolutely. So uh, a couple of things when it comes to retail. Until now, uh, we have never been big box shopping center owners. I'm the guy who's building the pad site, that bank ground up in front of the shopping center, uh, the urgent care, the Dunkin' Donuts pad site. There's tremendous value. People don't realize the, the tenant that used to be <laughs> in, the, in the big box may be paying three, four, five dollars a foot. The guy in the front might be paying fifty dollars a foot. Um, so to understand square footage um, is not specifically more profitable to own bigger shopping centers. It sounds great. Hey, I own 10 million square feet of shopping centers, you know, but a, guy, but a guy may own, you know, a couple dozen pad sites and may have the same revenue sources. Now, the relationships come over time. Um, so I mentioned earlier on, we don't have a lot of partners. Um, a lot of it, I go uh, on my own. Uh, there may be some equity that comes into deals. There not this typical structure of GPLP partnerships. And on the partnerships that I do have, uh, it's mostly with one specific individual who is a working partner, super knowledgeable, super sophisticated. He was the head of NextGen for ICSC, the entire New England region, uh, a land broker by trade initially. And then he was a tenant rep. Now, what that means in the retail front is he wasn't the guy who's putting a sign outside a shopping center for lease. He was the guy representing call it um, you know, a dental chain with you know, 100 locations or 80 locations, and they are saying, hey, we want to grow. He's repping them in all their growth. And then he's calling any one of the brokers listing a particular asset uh, for lease. The good thing when you do that as a broker is you're always getting paid, right? Because you're representing the tenant. No one right. wants, no one's going to circumvent you because the tenant has the relationship with you. That helps tremendously when it comes to uh, dealing with tenant relationships uh he had a whole bunch of tenant relationships also understood the retail market understood the development process understood the minds of national and 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 local uh you know retailers mom and so pop. yeah the mom pop. so you know while we do some mom pop, uh as infill like maybe we have a larger tenant that wants one space and all we could find in an existing building is a three tenant little strip center so the corporate tenant may go in, let's say, call it 50%, but we may have a ma-pa tenant uh, going in the, the other part of it. And ma-pa, you know, can be very successful, especially COVID time. It's people's bread and butter. Um, it's not a big corporation. Um, so we focus predominantly, like I say, you know, unbeknownst to us, unbeknownst to anybody of COVID, um, every, we're pretty much medical and food-based when it comes to retail. We're not building clothing. We never built clothing stores. We never built, you know, non-essential retail. Really wasn't our play. Even when we owned infill retail, 
it was a, you know, call it a 20,000 square foot center, smack the middle of a neighborhood that had the beauty salon and a nail salon and a laundry mat and a medical facility where they're essential services to those neighborhoods um, and kind of, you know, internet proof in a way. And so our focus is very much at this point, tenant relation, uh, as you can imagine, COVID threw a monkey wrench into a lot of people's expansion. Yeah. Uh, however, yeah. for some of the tenants, there's going to be tremendous opportunity in 2021 because instead of building ground up, which is costly, they may be able to take over an existing pad, a former bank, a former restaurant space, and then we're retrofitting interior and exterior to their specific need. Uh, but that's really our focus. Uh, we'll look at a piece of land or a larger shopping center and say, hey, maybe we'll demolish this entire shopping center, that whole big box space, instead reposition four or five pad sites in the front. We're gonna put a gas station, convenience in one and we're going to do a call it a Popeye's uh, in another um, you know and another medical pad in another one and so it's tenant it's definitely tenant relationships pre-covid uh, every month or two uh, myself and many times my partner on those deals were you know flying to different ICSE shows we had an entire Florida expansion uh, for a large medical tenant um, in Sarasota Tampa markets that got put on ice right now um, but we're we're working all the time with relationships and it's something you can't stop. Uh, that's, that's what we focus on when it comes to. Tell me something. To yeah. Abner, tell me something. Are you guys, do you guys own, meaning do you guys go through COVID owning, meaning have an ownership of some center or some uh, retail uh, property? We do. We do own some properties. What, what type of properties were they? Uh, we own a gas convenience location. Uh, that was actually a note we bought. Year, uh, a few years ago, uh, we built all the tanks. That's we put 20, cool. 20 year triple net leasing. Um, and you know, they, unbeknownst to a lot of people, gas volume was down, but because gas was so cheap, oil was so cheap, there's a bigger spread and a bigger margin for many of the operators. Right. People don't know that. Um, you know, just because gas or oil falls, call it, you know, by a dollar, doesn't mean there's you're saving a full dollar on your, on your, uh, you know, gas fill up. And so, thank God they've been great. They have a Dunkin' Donuts drive-through as well, so that's been very successful. Um, correct. We were in the midst in, in 19. We sold a bunch of product. Uh, we had and had completed, uh, like I mentioned before, a hospital uh, surgery facility. Um, we did have a, a very large REIT under contract at a very attractive cap rate to us, right? Very low five caps uh, for that particular deal. And they had finished all the due diligence and they had one day left uh, to their due diligence period. And they just said, hey, listen, we're out. We don't know what our rental collection is going to be. Unbeknownst, you you know this, Yishai, but unbeknownst to a lot of people, it, to, to maintain a status as a REIT, most cash flow has to be uh, give, distributed on a regular basis. So you could have a REIT with a half a billion dollars in assets, but have very, very little cash in the bank. And so they might not even be able to sustain a couple of weeks of non-payment of rent. Um, yes. so, so they, they were out, but we did sell it. Um, and the tenant did pay rent, um, from the beginning. Cause again, they were a large medical, uh, tenant. We do own a strip center with multiple tenants. Um, some were closed. Some we pushed off, uh, rent a bit. Um, some tried to uh, not pay rent, but really they were essential services and may have decided themselves to close a location, but may have 15 locations and closed, you know, call it seven of them, kept the other eight open. So, Maybe they're not making as much money, but we're not going to allow them not to pay rent. There's no reason that they were mandated to close. Tell me something. 
because I'm trying to keep all those, uh, you know, those shows less than an hour. Because I found out that the in uh, on uh, what do you call it, on Instagram, I can't upload it if it's more than an hour. So we'll I have to continue to the conversation each day. Exactly. <laughs> so here, here's what I want. No, we have we have eight minutes, and what I want to know, um, I want to accomplish in these eight minutes is a. Uh, if you could please tell us what do you do now with the non-performing notes that you're getting, what type, what asset classes, where, and what is your aim? And uh, and then we're going to go to straight ahead. Please tell us where your business is at and uh, what are you going, meaning going forward, what are your plans, meaning in terms of growth, uh, where do you want to go? So sure. let's start with the non-performing notes and then straight to that. Quickly run through the non-performing notes. We, during COVID time, purchased two non-performing notes. Like I mentioned, we had background in it prior, uh, so kind of knew the process. I do not buy notes currently. I'm not saying that won't change on assets that I don't want to own. And so I'm underwriting those assets. Uh, the discount on the note has to be so great or great enough that when I'm going to take possession of the asset, if I do take possession of the asset, I'm going to come in at such a low basis uh, that I got a great deal because purchasing a note, going through a foreclosure process if necessary is lengthy. It's even more complicated during COVID because the courts are closed um, and sympathetic to owners uh, of the properties. Um, and so we want, you know, steep discounts, you know, not only does someone equity get wiped away, we're also looking for the lenders to take a steep discount. We purchased two notes. One of them had um, was a, a 200,000 square foot industrial center. Uh, pretty new. The majority of it was built in 2015, um, right behind an airport. And I don't believe there was a COVID story in essence where we were looking at the note prior to COVID, um, but we got outbid. And then COVID happened. And I believe the bidder fell apart because his financing fell apart. We were prepared to come in at all cash. Um, fantastic asset. We got very lucky because, again, industrial. What are you going to do with it? So we, we, we would have loved, I'll tell you the story quickly, we would have loved to own, own it, lease it up. We bought it at, I'd say, about a 35% discount uh, to the senior debt. That's great. Um, and so, and there was millions of dollars of debt in the second and third position, part of it by the state of Connecticut. Um, wow. And so, you know, we would love to own the asset, but we knew there's a good chance we're not going to own the asset because at this point there's actually a buyer uh, the owner brought in a buyer in order to wipe away his personal guarantees on the asset. And so therefore it looks like probably the next couple of weeks will be paid off in full. Um, everybody's very happy uh, on that particular project. We do have equity investors flipped 70% to GP, 30% to LP because the underwriting was so fantastic, but they're still going to make a 25% uh, annualized return on their money. So that was a good, that's a good story. The second one was an asset I've looked at for 12 years, know the area well. I built six developments within a, probably one block of the asset. Kept them going in and out of foreclosure. Um, the lender was a private lender. The, the owner of the property was unrealistic. Um, so I knew the property well, could not figure out a way to redevelop the property. So it was a demolition. Um, again, challenge in that market to build ground up. I got a tip that uh, the current owner who never came through with his construction project and had defaulted on his note since January. I bought the note. We let the owner know that, hey, you got a PG. We're going to be coming after you personally as well uh, for the difference in value. But if you want, there is no second explain position. To, explain to people what is PG. Oh, a PG is a personal guarantee. So many a time when someone's borrowing, not only are they pledging the asset itself to back 
the debt to back the debt. They're also saying, hey, listen, I'm a high net worth individual. If it goes uh, you know, down the hole, uh, I'll have to pay the difference out of my pocket between the value of the property um, and the, the, you know, the current value of what the bank is taking out back the asset. So give an asset a million dollars, $500,000 in value at the time of foreclosure, a personal guarantee would say, hey, you got to write me another $500,000 check to the lender. So we said, hey, why don't you do something called a deed, a deed in lieu of foreclosure? A deed in lieu of foreclosure, in essence, is someone signing the property over to you, not having to go through the court system. You cannot do that if there's a second position or a third position from another lender because you need them to agree and there's nothing right. really in it for them, right? Yes. So yes. In that particular case, from, from the purchase of the, of the note to actual ownership took six weeks, uh, which was you know, just a, an amazing turnaround. We now own the asset, still cannot build our ground up project without the city uh, working with us on a complex uh, structure, which is called a 26 year tax fixed structure. In essence, we propose it to the city that if a typical property would pay $3,000 a year for property taxes per unit, we'll pay 550. It's still 200% more than the city's currently getting on a blighted property. However, it gets locked in for 26 years with a 1% increase. It's that, it's parking, it's loans, in order to bridge the gap on what we would get in rent here and what we need to get rent per square foot to build a ground up building. Our first hearing is actually January 13th with the city council. We have a lot Good of luck. support, yeah. thank you so much. So that's another asset class, another, another note we purchased. Beautiful. Listen, I'll tell you something. It's so interesting to hear you and it's so, in, and I got all kinds of comments here. Uh, uh, how interesting. And thanks for the info. And you, you can look in the, in, in the LinkedIn. You know, if you go on LinkedIn, you're going to see all these comments later after we're done. Um, I want to end up by asking you to tell everybody how they can find you and, uh, and so on. Meaning, I put on all the links, you know, all around Jasco Development, et cetera. And uh, how sure. can people find you if they have? Uh, if they have opportunities, if they want to invest, if they, whatever it is, you know, how can they sure. find you guys? Best way to find me is uh, on my email, which is avner, A-V-N-E-R, at jaskogroup.com. So it's avner at J-A-S-K-O group.com. Um, I will apologize if I don't get back to you right away. Uh, sometimes I get caught up and we're busy, uh, but I will as soon as I can. Um, if I can help anybody at any given time, just looking over a deal and hey, look, you know, I learn new things every single day. Um, so I always appreciate those who teach me. And if there's any knowledge that I can impart to anybody, I'd love to offer that. Beautiful. Thank you, Avner. Do me a favor, stick around for a minute. I mean, sure. I'm going to schmooze with you right after this. I'm just going to send my goodbyes to everybody else. Perfect. And uh, thank you, Avner. Just one second. So thank you so much, Avner, for being with us. And I think this was a spectacular show. Do you guys agree? I'm sure you do. Okay. So Avner, I'm going to put you in the waiting room and give me one second. Guys, uh, I hope you enjoyed this show with Avner Crone. It was really an amazing show. Uh, look at all the links. Find out all the links. If you guys are entering commercial real estate, check out the courses. Do whatever you need to do. Um, get educated. Get into commercial real estate. Do whatever you need to do in order to be successful in this field. With that, I wish you a beautiful, pleasant, and successful week. Until next time, Thursday, I'm going to see you guys. Take care of yourselves. Hey, guys, thanks for joining me in this CRE Shark Eye Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And 
Go subscribe, download, do whatever you guys need to do. And I'll see you in the next episode. Take care of yourselves.